0: Uh, Let me say as we begin this evening that uh, while we're continuing our study of these uh, lessons uh, from songs, that this lesson is going to be rather different uh, from the ones that we've done over past weeks. So that's one caveat. The second one is that I like generally to keep my preaching from 20 to 25 minutes. I do that week in and week out. I believe strongly in concision. But sometimes it takes longer than that to say what needs to be said. And so I'm preparing you in advance. This one may be a little longer. And maybe you're sitting there thinking, why are we going to give both barrels to people who are here on Sunday night? Well, I do wish that we didn't have quite so much of our regular crowd out this week on vacation and such but you who are here tonight are precisely the group that needs to hear this lesson and I want to begin I don't want to put anyone on the spot here I don't want to make anyone feel uncomfortable normally when we ask questions like this we say I don't want to see any hands I want to see your hands okay how many of you here tonight are Christians Raise your hands. Raise them high. Yeah, I look around and that's virtually everyone. And if you're not raising your hand, I'm not trying to make you feel uncomfortable, so don't worry about that, okay? How many of you, and I want to see your hands again, how many of you, if you died tonight, are completely confident, without any doubt, that you would go to heaven? Raise your hand. Would you go to heaven, Trisha, if you died tonight? You said you couldn't hear what I'm saying. Would you go to heaven if you died tonight? You don't know. You don't know. And that's not alone. I saw, what, maybe half a dozen of you raise your hands. So we've got virtually everyone here who is a Christian and only six or eight of you that raised your hands, that you're confident that you'd go to heaven. Why does that discrepancy exist? That's right. That was rhetorical. But you're right, Louise. (laughs) You're right, because people are so unsure, and that's exactly what we want to talk about tonight. The song that sort of inspires our lesson, we're not going to sing it for time's sake, it's number 480, it's Blessed Assurance. That's one that we all know. Uh, Fanny Crosby wrote that. She is an author that we've talked about already in this series of lessons. But we sing this a lot, you know the words. Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of His Spirit, washed in His blood. the chorus this is my story this is my song praising my Savior all the day long and it repeats that Crosby speaks of the confidence we have in Jesus the assurance brother Taylor prayed at length about that assurance that we should all have and that's what this song is about when we are born again of water in the Spirit. When we're washed in the blood of Christ, we become heirs of God. We have that foretaste of eternity. This is our story, and it is certain. It is true. It is assured. And yet, why is it that so many of us lack that assurance? Why do we not have confidence in our salvation? I think there are several things in play here. We have a misunderstanding of God's nature. We have an incomplete appreciation of His actions on our behalf. We don't fully realize what it means to be part of God's people, to be in Christ. And we could spend weeks and weeks and weeks laying the groundwork for that, but I want to try to just do this in one lesson tonight. We want to talk about that background work as briefly as possible, and it's all going to be familiar to you, but maybe we'll start to think about some of these things in a different way as we strive to answer that question. How can we have confidence in Christ? How can we have that blessed assurance? One of the things that I'm convinced of, and we try to emphasize this a good bit, and you're gonna see that This is something that I'll continue to emphasize. One of the things I am convinced of is that we need to be more aware of the meta-narrative. That's a fancy word that just means the big story. The big story of Scripture, the overarching narrative. So often we treat the little bits and pieces of it in isolation, and we don't appreciate the fact that all of these small stories make up one big story. And this story is all about what God has done, what God is doing, what God is going to do in the world. So I want to start tonight by thinking about that big-picture story from the 50,000-foot view. God's love motivated him to create the world, and we must never forget that God is love and that that attribute is at the heart of his nature. And with love comes relationships. God desired to have a relationship with humanity. He walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. But then sin entered the world and it broke. It fractured that relationship. God had to expel them from paradise. But of course, the story of the fall doesn't end there because humanity continued to degenerate until ultimately God decided to cleanse creation with a flood. But even there, in the midst of that destruction, God chose one man, Noah, to have a special relationship with, to be his representative. And I want us to realize there that we see this story repeating over and over and over again throughout the Bible. It's the story of God's efforts to repair this breach, to overcome the fracture in this relationship and to seek people to be his representatives in the world. Well, in the course of time, God formed a special relationship with one of Noah's descendants, Abraham. And God promised Abraham a number of things. He promised that he would make his descendants into a great nation. He promised them land. But the most important thing he promised Abraham was that through his descendants, through his seed, all people on the earth would be blessed. So Abraham became God's special representative, and through his descendants, God endeavored to restore this broken relationship with humanity. And he continued in a relationship with Abraham's children, with Isaac, with Jacob, with Joseph. And then many years later, when Abraham's descendants, now grown into a nation, the Israelites found themselves in bondage in Egypt. God remembered the promise that he'd made to Abraham and he acted to deliver them he brought them up out of Egypt he brought them to Mount Sinai and there he established a covenant relationship with them as a whole God established a relationship with this people and God walked with the Israelites because they were in a covenant relationship with him even though Israel didn't always hold up their end of the bargain even though Moses was on top of the mountain getting the stipulations for this relationship. And uh, in a passage we're going to look at in a a bit, in Jeremiah 31, God compares his relationship with Israel to uh, a marriage. So basically, we've got the wedding vows taking place. They are disobedient even then. God still holds up his part of the bargain. He remains faithful to them. Well, to make the long story short, you know this. The history of Israel is essentially the history of this pattern of continual rejection of relationship with God. From being on the borders of the promised land all the way to rejecting him for idols in the days of the kings, Israel repeatedly turns from God. God called prophets to try to call the people back into communion with him, but but they didn't listen. And so, ultimately, God allowed them to be taken away by their enemies, the Assyrians for the northern kingdom, the Babylonians for the southern kingdom. But the prophets, and this brings us to Jeremiah 31, the prophets looked forward to a day when God would establish a new covenant with a righteous remnant of Israel. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the greatest to the least of them, declares the Lord. Four, I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. When you see that word, "for," that's always very important. You notice here that there is a bond between relationship with God and forgiveness everyone will know god why for i will forgive their iniquity and i will remember their sin no more so the big story that we see in the old testament over and over and over again is god reaching out to his creation he seeks a relationship with humanity he acts on their behalf so that human beings can enjoy his blessings, but unfortunately the people's sin keeps getting in the way. But that's the big story of Scripture. God acting on behalf of humanity to restore this relationship that humans broke. John 3, 16, the most famous verse in all the Bible, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shouldn't perish but have everlasting life. That's the thread that runs through all of Scripture. That's what the big story is all about. God working to restore the right order. Well, we come to the New Testament, and what we find there is that we are reconciled to God in Christ. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Paul says we are at peace with God. And to understand what it means to be at peace with God, we need to first understand what it means to be God's enemies. Paul says earlier in Romans, in chapter 3 and verse 10, there's none righteous, no, not one. A little bit later in that same chapter, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. John tells us in First John chapter three and verse four, he calls sin lawlessness. Sin is a transgression of the law. It's breaking the law. So, in other words, sins are acts that violate God's laws. It makes us outlaws. It makes us God's enemies. And because God is perfectly just, his justice demands that he punish transgressions of the law. So here we are as God's enemies, headed for judgment, headed for punishment, powerless to do anything about that. And yet Paul says, we have peace with God. How is that possible? Well, that's where the peacemaker comes in. And Paul mentions that too. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. God's justice demands that he punish sin. But God's also merciful. As Peter tells us, he's unwilling that any should perish. He desires that all should come to repentance. How do we reconcile these two things? How do we solve this dilemma? Jesus. Jesus is the answer and to fully understand that we have to have some idea of what this word justified in Romans 5 and verse 1 means. It's a passive verb that is this is not something that we do we can't make ourselves justified it's something that's done to us God declares us justified and to be justified means to be found And Treated I should say pronounced treated as if you're righteous to be acquitted It's not to be declared not guilty, but it's that you're guilty, but you're pardoned. It's not held to your account So Paul's not saying that we are righteous He's saying that we are treated as if we were righteous even though we're not We get a good idea of this in the previous chapter, Romans 4 and verse 3. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to to him as righteousness. Based on his faith, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him. He was credited, he was treated as if he were righteous. Even though, of course, he he wasn't. Abraham made just as many mistakes as any man does. Well, what we see at the end of this chapter is that the same thing is true for us. Romans 4, verse 23. The words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Our spiritual bank account, if we can think of it that way, was empty. Christ made the deposit. His righteousness was credited to our account. So justification, this isn't exactly what the word means, but it's a good way to remember what it means. Justification means that I am treated just as if I had lived Jesus' life. And that's because Jesus was treated just as if he had lived my life. Jesus received what we deserve, that punishment, that condemnation, so that we can all receive in Him what He deserves. That means God's justice that we talked about has been satisfied. We can be reconciled to God. We can enjoy His love. We can have peace with Him. We can have that relationship with Him that He seeks. The message of Romans as a whole and of chapter five verse one in particular is that God is the peacemaker He's the one that fixes this relationship. He bridges the gap That's consistent with everything that we saw in the Old Testament God reaching out to restore Relationship with humanity God taking action on behalf of his creatures to make peace the one who by all rights should be our enemy has become our peacemaker. All of that should be familiar to us as Christians, but I wonder sometimes if we don't put it together in quite that way, if we don't think about it that way, if we fully grasp the implications of that big story. We have peace with God through Christ. And God is the one who's taken the initiative in that. We have to come into a relationship with God to have that peace, and we do that, as we know, through faith and repentance and baptism. We have to accept what He's offering, and that's an important lesson in itself, but that's not our topic tonight. That's another night. The question we want to get to tonight is, what then? That is, we have peace with God, we're justified, we're declared to be righteous. We come into this relationship with Him through baptism, our sins are washed away, we're added to His people, but but what happens after that? What about sins we commit after baptism? Can we be forgiven of those? The early church struggled with this question and by the early church, I mean in the second, the third, and the fourth centuries, the liberals, the liberals in the early church said, yes, you can be forgiven once. The conservatives said, no, you cannot be forgiven. You have to be perfect. And that's why we see in those early centuries so many delaying baptism until their deathbed. If you know anything about history, Constantine is the greatest example of that, the most famous one lived ostensibly as a Christian for years, but was only baptized when he was dying Because no one wanted to risk sinning after their baptism because they thought they'd be condemned Do we need to be baptized again each and every time that we sin? We know that's not the answer. We know we can be forgiven Why is it then that we have trouble emotionally accepting that? Why do we struggle so much of the time with feeling forgiven? John gives us the answer in 1 John chapter 1. Part of this text was read already and we're going to spend most of the rest of our time there. But in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, he says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To confess means to admit openly that we've sinned, to accuse ourselves of our own evil deeds. And John contrasts confession with, in verse number 10, claiming that we don't sin. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. We can choose to deny that we're sinners, or we can choose to confess our sins to God. And only the latter, only the ones that we confess, or only that act of confession, only that... brings brings forgiveness, I should say. There's a lot that we could say here about the importance of confession and how we don't confess like we ought. James says in James chapter 5, we need to confess our faults one to another. Boy, we don't ever do that. We don't want anyone else to know that we're struggling. Uh, Our pride gets in the way. We're unwilling to be vulnerable. That's a whole other series of lessons there. We won't get into that tonight either. But what I'm really driving at here And I'd already determined to talk about this, obviously, but we were at lunch, and uh, Philip asked me what we were going to talk about tonight, and he anticipated this very thing. He asked this question that I know that a lot of people already have on their minds. What if I sin and I die before I get a chance to repent? If we have to repent, if we have to confess, and I die before I can do that, what happens then? Well, there are a couple of things to keep in mind here before we really start digging in. First, if a lot of you here have probably seen the movie Rudy. There's this scene in Rudy where he tried several times to transfer into Notre Dame. He hasn't made it in, and there it's his last opportunity, and he's praying there in the uh, cathedral, and the Catholic priest comes up and talks to him and you know assures him he's done everything that he can do, and, and Rudy uh, says... You know, is there anything that you can do for me?" And the priest, Father Kavanaugh, says, "'Son, in 35 years of theological studies, I've come to only two hard, incontrovertible truths. There is a God, and I'm not Him.'" And that's important for us to remember. There is a God. I'm not God. God will ultimately judge and answer this definitively. Secondly, the best thing to do, just like all hypothetical questions like this, is to do our best to never find ourselves in this situation. Dying with sin that's unconfessed, of. But with all that said, I think there are some indications in Scripture that move us toward an answer here. And the first question to ask is, what is your overall pattern of life? We go back to 1 John chapter 1. This was read earlier. If we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What we learn here is that Jesus' blood continuously cleanses sin. That's what it says there. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from sin if we walk in the light, if we confess our sins. All of these verbs here, the cleansing, the walking, the confessing, all of these are in the present subjective tense. And what that means is that it indicates continuous action. That is that this is ongoing. Jesus' blood cleanses us from our past sins and our baptism. Yes. Yes. But Jesus' blood continues to cleanse us from our future sins as long as we continue to walk and to confess. The blood of Jesus doesn't flow from a spigot that you turn off, you know, all right? It's not one of these things where you have it and now you sin and it's turned off and now you repent and it's turned back on. No, that's not how it works. It continuously cleanses us from sin as long as we're walking, again, continuous action, And confessing as we ought. We are expected to follow God's commands. Yes, you know, there are some in the religious world that teach the perseverance of the saints. That is, that once you're saved, you're always saved. Well, that's it's not what Scripture teaches. We're expected to follow God's commands, even in this same context. Chapter 2 verse 3, by this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. There's a lot John has to say about this. We're expected to to act with love, chapter 3 and verse 16, uh, in the way that we treat one another. You could read that if you want. But here's what I want you to note. We go back to chapter 1. Walking in the light includes Hmm. sin. I'm going to say that again because I'm not sure that we grasp that. Walking in the light includes sin. In this context, John is writing to Christians and he's talking about those who've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And he says then, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. We can be walking in the light. In fact, we will be walking in the light, and we will sin. The issue here is not perfection. It's direction. Which way are you walking in? We're talking here about faithfulness, continuing to be loyal to God, continuing to trust in Jesus, continuing this pattern of walking and confessing. And that means, secondly, what we really need to do here is address the underlying assumption of this question. This question being, what if I sin and I die before I get a chance to repent? The underlying assumption of this question is that we move in and out of salvation with each and every sin that we commit. We move out of it with a sin, we move back into it with repentance, back and forth. Conceivably multiple times a day I can't find any indication of that in scripture Now It's clear we can fall from grace I mentioned that already and I'll just give you one passage that indicates that in Hebrews chapter 6 beginning in verse 4 It's impossible in the case of those who've once been enlightened who've tasted the heavenly gift and who've shared in the Holy Spirit and have Tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to content. Can a Christian fall from grace? Yes, absolutely. A Christian can drive God from their lives. They can rebel. They can turn their back on Him. They can reject Him. But there is no evidence that this happens immediately with every type of sin. And In fact, there's a lot of good evidence to the contrary. To begin with, we need to remember, and if you wondered why we went over all that background before, we have to remember the big story. God doesn't want to destroy us. God wants to save us. That's his whole purpose. He's not looking for an excuse to condemn us. If he wanted to do that, he had us in that situation before the cross. He didn't have to do anything to condemn us. We justly deserved condemnation. We have to remember, too, that Christianity is a growth process. Uh, here at the end of 2 Peter, for exa- for example, pardon me, chapter 3, verse 17, You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. We know there are other passages that teach that. In Ephesians chapter 4, for example, that uh, we're to grow up into the head of the body, which is Christ. Christianity is a growth process, a development process. We're not expected to have everything figured out at the beginning. There are things I understand now that I didn't understand when I first became a Christian. Hopefully that applies to all of you. Hopefully I continue to grow and to mature in my understanding. God doesn't expect or demand that we have it all figured out at once. But what's the real clincher here is that there are numerous indications in the New Testament of people, Christians, who are in sin, unrepented sin, and yet who still have a relationship with God. That proves one doesn't immediately lose their salvation with each and every sin. Uh, The church in Corinth, this is the best example of this. First Corinthians. I hope everybody here remembers at least something about the church in Corinth. And the short version of it is they're pretty messed up. They had factions in several different ways. They were dividing up following different preachers. They were dividing up along social stratification. They they were using the Lord's Supper as a way to divide up and show the haves versus the have-nots instead of a means of unity. There were factions about who had the better spiritual gifts because everybody wanted to speak in tongues. They thought that made them really cool There were problems with brethren taking one another and suing them before the law courts There were problems with people eating meat offered to idols The biggest one is in chapter 5 where there is a man who has his father's wife And Paul says that you're not only tolerating that you're celebrating it like we're enlightened. We're liberated people This is a church replete with problems and despite this, Paul addresses them in chapter 1, starting in verse number 2, as the church of God, sanctified in Christ Jesus. He calls them saints. He calls them brothers. He says, even in verse number 30, you are in Christ Jesus. Do they need to repent? Yes, absolutely. That's what so much of this letter is about. Paul calls them to repent. And yet, their relationship with God isn't severed verse 4 I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and in all knowledge even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you're not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. This church is full of problems. This church needs to repent. And yet Paul writes to them there confident that God will sustain them. They're still in a relationship with him. They need to make changes. There's danger. But they haven't been cut off yet. Another good example of many that we could name comes from Revelation, the letters to the seven churches and the one to Ephesus in particular. Jesus states to them, chapter 2, verse 5, Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Jesus threatened to remove their lampstand, that is, to end their standing among his people. They needed to repent, and if they didn't, he would sever the relationship. But that hadn't happened yet. They needed to repent. There were problems. There was a warning, but it hadn't happened yet. And so this passage also implies that even though sin will drive God from us, it's not immediate. We have to consider, finally, What kind of sin it was that went unconfessed? Why does this matter? Well, if we look back at the Old Testament and we see how it reveals God's nature We see that he distinguished between types of sin There are so many faithful Christians and this goes back to the question Philip asked earlier today And I knew he was going to ask it and I know a lot of you think it because so many think this way they fear that they'll make a mistake they'll slip up they won't have a chance to repent and they'll be eternally lost because of that. You know, I, I think of you know, the, the classic example of a hypothetical, a, a guy who's up on a ladder, he's working on the roof of his house and he hits his thumb with a hammer and he lets out a curse word and he gets off balance and he falls down and he breaks his neck and he's condemned to hell. Uh, we laugh at that, but that's essentially the way we, we treat this. And again, I can't find anything like that taught. In the Old Testament, God differentiated between types of sin. There's unintentional sin, the hitting your thumb with a hammer type. And there's what's called high-handed sin. You can read about this in Numbers 15. High-handed sin is rebellious sin. This is defiant. This is me shaking my fist in God's face and saying, I know it's wrong, and I don't care. I'm going to do what I want to do. Those two things are different. And we see in the New Testament that distinction is maintained. Jesus, for example, speaks about weightier matters of the law, implying that there are lesser matters. Paul makes distinctions between different types of sin. He says in Galatians 6 that uh, if anyone is overtaken in a fault, restore that one in a spirit of meekness. And yet that fellow living boldly with his father's wife in 1 Corinthians 5, he says, cast him out and deliver him over to Satan. There's a difference in those things. To the elders of the church in Crete Titus 1 verse 13 he told them to rebuke false teachers harshly see there seems to be a distinction here Based on whether our sin is rebellious to God or not and based on the type of influence that it can have What we have to remember overall again is that ultimately God is the judge God makes the decision on this God is a perfect judge He won't make any mistakes and the way to be sure of our salvation is to continue to walk, continue to confess our sin. Don't get me wrong, we shouldn't want to face God at the judgment with any unconfessed sin in our lives. But we also shouldn't fear that God is looking for a reason to condemn us. To go to the end of 1 John, chapter five, verse 13, he's summing his whole letter up and he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. When I asked that question at the beginning, how many of you are confident if you died, go to to heaven? John wants everyone to be able to raise their hand. I'm writing this so you can know you have eternal life. To have confidence in your salvation is not arrogant, it's not prideful, it's not boastful, because your confidence ultimately isn't in yourself. It's in Christ. And ironically, if we are concerned that our own perfection is required in order to be saved, we're not trusting in Christ. We've ceased to do that. We're trusting in ourselves and how good we can be. A congregation, as we close here... Congregation conducted a survey that I think is uh, insightful for us. This went out to 167 teens and adults. And of these 167, 94% of them were Christians. And this was a Wednesday night crowd. So, much like the Sunday night or the Wednesday night crowd here, this this is your core group, okay? And of the seven questions asked, the key one was the same one I asked at the beginning If you died right now, would you go to heaven? And there were four possible responses. Yes, no, I don't know, or I think so, but I'm not sure. 94% Christians, I said, remember that. 38% of those responded with one of the three negative answers. That is, indicated they weren't certain. Although I should say it's a better percentage than we got here. 37% of those were 65 or older. On average, they had been Christians for 51 years each. Still weren't sure. And I think, based on our little informal survey here tonight, that that same pattern would hold true in most congregations. And that's ultimately because so many fail to understand what forgiveness really is what it means to be in a relationship with God. Now, there are some people, even on that survey, some people who feel that they're saved even though they're not, they've never come to Christ. That's, again, another lesson. But the bigger problem, the one I'm more concerned with and the one that we're dealing with tonight is those who doubt their release. People who are faithful Christians have been for decades, who have a pattern of prayer and study and worship in their lives, people who are walking in the light, people who are confessing their sins, and yet they never feel forgiven. I've heard this more than once. One example of it stands out to me in particular a lady who was uh, a very devout. Christian on her deathbed and she said to me I just hope that I go to heaven I hope that I've been good enough when we hear that some of you have probably heard things like that means that we fail. As teachers, as preachers, as elders, if we hear that, we have failed. It's not a roll of the dice. We should be confident. We should have that assurance. And the problem is so often we are focused on our own weakness rather than focused on his strength. Christians are confident in their salvation not because of anything that we've done but because of what God's already done for us in Christ. So often we've missed the power of the message of forgiveness. We've missed the blessed assurance that it provides. I hope maybe tonight we've given you some food for thought to rethink that to be a bit more confident if you are a Christian and if you're walking and if you're confessing, even if you do sin, you're not lost as long as you continue on that pattern. That's what's expected. So rejoice. Be confident in your salvation. Now, maybe you're here tonight and there is sin in your life that's unconfessed, sin of a serious nature, and you need to get right with God. If we can help you in any way this evening, the message is yours. The invitation is the Lord's. Come while we stand and sing.